they're much more policy driven than other generations. Like other generations, it's like, oh, as long as my side wins, as long as my political party's in charge, and I'm okay with it. Whereas Gen Z said, we don't care about Republican, Democrat. What are you going to actually do for these issues? Welcome to The Lost Debate, unconventional media for the rest of us. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. We've got a packed schedule today. Corey, where are we going to start? we got a lot to talk about today, Ravi. First up, coming up, younger voters are more disengaged with politics than ever before. What does that mean for Election Day and next year's midterms? Also, China low-key launched a hypersonic missile. Ravi asked the question, will China's military surpass ours? And finally, 14 people have died in a New York jail since last December. I sat down with two experts on how staffing shortages have brought the infamous Rikers Island into further crisis. But first things first, is the pandemic over? Robbie, I think that's a question that a lot of people are asking. And uh, Bill Maher did a really interesting segment about this on his show last week. Uh, Let's take a look at that clip and see what he had to say about it. I know some people seem to not want to give up on the wonderful pandemic, but you know what? (laughs) It's over. There's always going to be a variance. You shouldn't have to wear masks. I should be able, I haven't had a meeting with my staff since March of 2020. That's crazy. So, Robbie, what do we think about this? I mean, does Bill Maher have a point? I mean, how much more of this do we have to endure before we get back to some resemblance of what's normal? Yeah, I'm spiritually with Bill Maher, even though I I think we probably come out uh, on some of the issues differently about what we actually do about it. But he's got a point about people who cling to the pandemic. I think if you've ever had the experience of, you know, either being sick and spending a couple of days at home and not seeing daylight or just being depressed and not going outside for a day or two, it's really hard to reemerge and get back to life as normal. And we've now done this for a year or two as a society. And so I think a lot of people are really frozen as they tr- they they think about how to re-engage with life as quote unquote normal. But I feel like there are two there are two Americas on this right now. There's people in the higher income brackets who saw their wealth increase 10% over the course of the pandemic. And then people who are in the lower income brackets who saw a 25% cut. And then you've got people who just fetishize this pandemic. Like everybody's got that friend who just is addicted to lecturing people in their lives and addicted to the the, the language of the pandemic. And so I think it's going to be really hard for some people to move past this. It seems like to me, it's sort of kind of this political dichotomy. Obviously, there's people on the right who who have never liked these restrictions. So obviously, they're over it. They've been over it for a long time. But then, like you said, there's people on the left who have almost made COVID protocols an identity. Yeah, I mean, it's people who in their Facebook profile pictures, they have pictures of themselves with a mask on, like by themselves. Like it doesn't make any sense. So it's like some people are going to have to figure out how do they even like see themselves outside of this pandemic? Yeah. And I think, you know, a big question I've had is, you know, when when Bill Maher says it's time to get back to normal, what is normal? Yeah. Uh, Because I think depending on where you are and how privileged you are, normal could already be today. Yeah. If you don't have kids like me or you live in a city like New York and you're vaccinated pretty much like if I want to go to a basketball game or I want to go into a restaurant it like there's nothing about today that's that much different than pre-pandemic. Yeah, I'll put on my mask when I go on the subway or if I interact with people who, you know, even out of courtesy, even if it's not the rule, I put on a mask when I interact with people who see a high volume of customers every single day, whether that's the rule or not. But Corey, I suspect he's talking about people who have a different experience with COVID and protocols than what I just described. Well, I mean, if we're talking about what is normal we got to look at what the experts are saying. So Fauci, for instance, which a lot of people don't necessarily trust him as much these days, but Fauci was on CNN and basically said that normal to him means basically a room full of adults 
without a mask on, who really aren't concerned whether or not, you know, everybody, whether or not everybody else is vaccinated. And then I think he also gave some pretty hardcore numbers about there needing to be less than 10,000 cases per week in order for us to be considered no longer in a pandemic. And so now we're seeing around like 69,000 cases per week on average going into November. So with that being said, you know, perhaps this isn't really over, over, like maybe we were at the tail end of this, but it's not quite over. But I mean, I think the average person doesn't really care about the overall national numbers. They're just saying if it's okay in my neighborhood to no longer wear a mask, then that's the way it should be going forward. Right. And where I'm sympathetic to the public health experts is in situations where uh, the pandemic reaches the point where we exceed hospital capacity. So for me, that's kind of the red line. And I think that we should be relatively normal until and unless we're hitting or approaching that point. And that's just my informal metric I use because otherwise uh, we'll be years before we can be quote unquote normal again. But there's a, you know another piece here, which is more symbolic, which is I think normal would be, this is what I'm asking out of society right now is that we, we don't uh, use as our primary identity our COVID politics. That would be the normal that I'm looking forward to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it really comes down to kind of kind of an income thing. I think the people who benefited the most from COVID are wealthier people, and for them, it was easy for them to shut down their lives. It's easier when you're when you have more money. But low income people who actually lost the most jobs during COVID nineteen, they're actually the ones who found it hardest to find childcare for their kids when schools were shutting down, or they found it hardest to work from home because a lot of their jobs you just can't do from home. So I think like, you know, the low income people, they're definitely ready for this to just be over with and to just move on. And I think, you know, you're also a parent. And I think that the school politics of this are this is where people are being affected the most by the kind of herky jerky guidelines that are happening and where I think people are the most frustrated with this pandemic not being over. Absolutely. Uh, well, hopefully it's it'll end soon because I think we're all ready for the holidays and ready to see our families again. So yeah, another story that we're following is Amherst College has basically said that it's going to end its practice of legacy admissions, which is basically showing preferential treatment to the children of alumni students. And this is something that a lot of private universities do, a lot of Ivy League universities do. It's actually been documented that you have almost quadruple the chance of getting into one of these more exclusive schools if you have a parent or a relative who's also attended the school before you. Um, and so you know, I don't really know much about legacy admissions. The only thing I even know about it is from this episode of The Simpsons where they talked about it this one time. Maybe we should show that clip. I'm a privileged boy. It's great, I gotta tell ya. Privileged boy. My dad can buy and sell ya. It really doesn't matter that you're on the list in front of me. I'm gonna get your table because I always tip the mater D and then I'll go to Yale because I am a legacy. I'm better than you. Well, I think that, Corey, gives uh, our listeners everything they need uh, on this subject so we can move on. <laughs> but no, uh, alumni legacy students are highly preferenced in the admissions process right now. There are studies that say it either doubles and quadruples your chances of getting into a university. And there are certain universities where that number is even higher. And some researchers have pegged legacy status as the equivalent of a 160 point boost on your SAT score, which oh, wow. is already on top of whatever privilege you had before this about you know the kinds of schools you went to and the kind of tutors you would have had and the access to whatever resources that you had. An example of this is you know perhaps the most elite university in America, which is Harvard, 36% of kids in the class of 2022 had some relative who attended Harvard previously. And this seems like a huge deal that's not being talked about nearly enough. 
No, but if you look at the history of it, I think it goes back to like the 1920s when the children of immigrants were starting to go to college and we had a lot of Jewish people and uh, Catholics going to college. And so the universities were really excited about that, I imagine. Well, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, to some degree. But instead, what happened was a lot of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants decided that they were going to create this system that made it easier for their children and their grandchildren to go to these more exclusive universities. And so that's where a lot of it starts. And it really hasn't changed a whole lot in the last 100 years or so. I know John Hopkins University actually decided to do away with legacy admissions back in like 2014. They did it quietly because they didn't really want anybody to know about it. They wanted to kind of do some studies on it. And it actually did increase uh, their population of disadvantaged students and students from low income housing, uh, just because they were able to sort of kind of open up these, uh, the availability of a, of a school so exclusive. So there definitely is some merit to ending this practice and making the system a little bit more fair. This is the Ravi uh, privilege episode, I guess, but I went to Yale, yes. uh, where legacy status is rampant. Mm -hmm. uh, but I went to the law school, which didn't like practice like a very deep legacy process, which is the only reason why I got in. You know, my dad's an immigrant from India. My mom didn't even have a bachelor's degree at that point mm -hmm. uh, and went to City University of New York. But when I would interact with undergrad students, uh, it was hard to find an undergrad student who wasn't a legacy student, an athlete, a child of a professor, a child of a super wealthy person who could be a donor, like an Emirati or an oligarch. Yeah. Uh, so you go down this list and you, I was always puzzled to be like, well, what normal people go to this university? You know, like, like what, what's the admissions process for just like the smart kid in the, the public school down the street, you know? Yeah. And I think also too, it's a very similar conversation to like affirmative action, right? Because, you know, a lot of conservatives like to fixate on affirmative action, basically limiting the amount of like what you just said, like normal average everyday white children being able to go to these colleges. But the reality is based off of the data you're saying, it sounds like the legacy admissions sounds like it's way more of them taking up these spots than it is people uh, associated with affirmative action. So why doesn't, you know, pe why don't we focus more on legacy emissions taking up these spaces rather than affirmative action. Like, why is that not a more part of the conversation? Well, yeah, and it's it, it obviously is going to be different by school, right? Like a big state school like Binghamton, where I went to undergrad, uh, is probably going to have more affirmative action students than legacy. I don't even know if we practice legacy. Yeah. But so much of the debate is fixated on these elite universities. So, for instance, Harvard is the actually the focus of the big affirmative action case in the country right now about Asian-American students uh, who feel like they're left out of this process and discriminated against with good reason and really strong evidence that they're being discriminated against in the admissions process, but they're focusing mostly on affirmative action. And the debate is largely on affirmative action. And like you said, I would be, it was hard to find data on what percentage of students uh, who attend Harvard, for example, are affirmative action. That data isn't easy to find. I would be shocked if that number was higher than the 36% who are some form of relative of a, an alumni. And then you pile on all the other things I said, there's gotta be 50 plus percent of people who have one form of privilege in the admissions process or another. There's no way affirmative action is bigger than that. Yeah, so it seems like we come to a consensus that legacy admissions are, are kind of bad and kind of outdated. So what do we do for colleges that refuse to let go of that legacy? You know, what do we do? Yeah, and to be clear, if somebody is opposed to affirmative action, they can also be opposed to this. I, I think they just put as much energy into this as affirmative action, but I think there are common sense things that we could do that can seem radical mm -hmm. to help reform these policies. People have to remember that these are nonprofit institutions. 
why are we giving nonprofit status to what are essentially elite clubs in America right now? We should strip nonprofit status of universities that don't remove this legacy status admissions, schools that can sign a pledge to say that we're not preferencing rich super wealthy, powerful people over average people, because it's a nonprofit, you're supposed to further the public good. Mm -hmm. And we should also attach uh, certain markers as it relates to these endowments that these universities have, because it's a, it's a related issue, because basically part of what they're doing is they're preferencing these elite kids so they continue to grow these endowments that just keep growing and growing and growing. You know, Malcolm Gladwell called them, uh, you know, universities today are, are hedge funds with educational institutions attached to them. <laughs> so what I would do is I would use the leverage of the nonprofit status to force these schools to be more equitable. And I do think that there could be an alliance among people who are frustrated, for example, by uh, the lack of access for middle-class white kids, uh, but who also um, are frustrated by, you know, Asian Americans getting discriminated against. You can pull those folks together in a coalition to say, all right, you can take on legacy status. Sounds like some interesting solutions. I don't think Big Ed will go for it, but it definitely <laughs> does sound like some interesting solutions. So another story that we're following deals with some polling data regarding Generation Z, one of our favorite generations here at Lost Debate. And it basically says that young people are over Democrats and Republicans. New data shows that Generation Z isn't really fond of either of the two major political parties, that they're just not okay with this two-party system. And what does this mean for both, you know, the election that's going on this year here in 2021, but also for the upcoming midterm elections? It sounds like this is bad news more for Democrats because it seems like young people tend to vote for the Democratic Party more than than any other generation. So if they're voting less or not, you know, okay with this system as much, it's not like that's really bad news for the left. This is definitely bad news for Democrats. And this reminds me of when Obama was elected, there was a huge drop after that election in support uh, for the Democratic Party and Obama in general, and just political participation generally. And it was actually a steeper drop than what we're seeing today. And, you know, it's similar, like voters were motivated to vote for Obama who were younger, but then the air went out of the balloon and, and people, younger voters were motivated to vote against Trump. And now the air is out of that balloon. And just because it's happened in the past doesn't mean Democrats should rest on their laurels. Because if you remember, Democrats got their asses kicked in the midterm elections after Obama was oh, yeah, elected. So yeah. this is, I think, part of a trend of certain key Democratic constituencies losing enthusiasm. And uh, I worry sometimes that people just say, well, this is what happens after an election. But there are real reasons why these young people are dis disenchanted with politics. And in many ways, that's why we started Lost Debate, which is to really get at the, the policy concerns and the vision of younger people as a former school principal. I, I know that like these are kids who are deeply idealistic and have strong beliefs but they just don't feel like they're being well served right now. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned policy because it seems like Gen Z and younger people, they're much more policy driven than other generations. Like other generations, it's like, oh, as long as my side wins, as long as my political party's in charge and I'm okay with it. Whereas Gen Z says, we don't care about Republican Democrat. What are you going to actually do for the climate? What are you going to actually do about economic inequality? What are you going to actually do about our schools? They care about the actual issues and they're going to hold these politicians accountable for their actual actions and not just the lip service that a lot of politicians pay when it comes to these issues. And I think that's actually a really good thing, right? It's a good thing that younger people are more focused on the actual meat of 
of uh, of politics. But I think the sad thing is that they're just starting to figure out something that we all kind of figure out uh, in our 20s and 30s. And that's that democracy moves really, really slow and mm-hmm. that the government in general is just not really efficient at doing things in a really quick manner. And that, you know, it just takes time to, to push, you know, things like Build Back Better and things like that. Like that stuff takes a lot of time. And Gen Z just has no patience for it. Well, I think this can go in a number of different directions, Corey. I think he could these kids could just you know, live a life of political nihilism where they just disengage from politics generally. Uh, I think that they can become captive to the partisan politics that have dominated our lives, you know, as they start to negotiate with the realities of life. Or my favorite option is that perhaps they are the first generation to give us a true third party in our lifetime. And that's what I'm hoping for here. That's what I, I hope for in this next generation. Sounds like a really interesting conversation. We'll be right back. What? What? What's actually happening? What's actually happening? What? Since the Cold War, we haven't really had to worry about another country surpassing the U.S. militarily. Sure, we've had non-state actors like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, drug cartels, but no other country has really gone toe-to-toe with us. But that's about to change, and that change may be irreversible. Let me explain. You may have noticed a story a few weeks ago that was making the rounds about how China tested something called a hypersonic missile. It's the most significant public acknowledgement by a senior U.S. official that China conducted two tests of a hypersonic missile system this summer. Tests which were first reported by the Financial Times. And that brings us to what's actually happening, China's military might. Let's take a step back and talk about this hypersonic missile. Hypersonic is probably a term that's meaningless to you. What makes this different than any other missile that you've read about? Well, to start, it's five times the speed of sound, or it moves at five times the speed of sound. It's highly maneuverable, and it's meant to evade all defense systems, including ours. And you could put a nuke on this, uh, and you could potentially use it to strike surgically the ports and infrastructure within the United States. That's why the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, called this moment, this test, a Sputnik moment, or something very close to it. And as scary as all of this sounds, that test in and of itself wasn't the biggest deal to come out of this past few weeks with China. Um, After this test, Mark Milley also said, I quote, the Chinese military capabilities are much greater than that single test. They're expanding rapidly in space and cyber and then in traditional domains of land, sea, and air. How much should we be concerned about China, an authoritarian competitor of the United States surpassing our military? Well, some people aren't that concerned at all. And part of it is because if you just look at the raw numbers, things look like they're okay. We outspend China three times. We have 16 times the nuclear warheads that they have. We have an 11 to 2 advantage on nuclear-powered aircraft carriers. We have 200 modern fighter jets to their six. And we have roughly 800 overseas bases to their three. But that's just a bunch of stuff, a lot of stuff that was innovated years, perhaps decades ago. Uh, The way I like to think about this, if you think about these overseas bases that we have, for example, it could be that we're Blockbuster, right, with all of our brick and mortar locations, and China's Netflix, which is relentlessly innovating around us and over us. Uh, And there is some evidence to believe this, actually quite a lot of evidence. So General John Hayden, who's the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who's retiring next month, 
uh, recently said, quote, calling China a pacing threat is a useful term because the pace at which China is moving is stunning. The pace they're moving and the trajectory they're on will surpass Russia and the United States if we don't do something to change it. It will happen. So I think we have to do something. And it's gotten so bad that the Air Force's first chief software officer, a guy named Nicholas Chalin, resigned in protest over this very issue recently. And he said, quote, we have no competing fighting chance against China in 15 to 20 years. Right now, it's already a done deal. It's already over, in my opinion. And then he pointed to things like cyber, machine learning, AI, and he said that this stuff is way more important than, for example, a fifth generation F-35, right? And our weaknesses are already showing. If you just pay attention to the news, right? Russian uh, hackers recently penetrated several U.S. agencies through solar winds, like this hacking thing that recently happened, and they went undetected for months. Uh, the U.S. is in a precarious state when it comes to AI, where domestic U.S. companies are turning their backs on the U.S. government and not working with them on AI, all while Chinese companies domestically are basically forced to work with the Chinese government. And Chalin also said that these people who point to the U.S. expenditures on the military and cybersecurity are focused on the wrong thing. He said that that extra money is immaterial, as he called it. And Chalin pointed to the fact that a lot of people are saying we spend so much more money than China. And he said that this is the wrong focus. He said it's immaterial. And then he pointed to a, a few ways in which we spend our money that make the money not the question we should be asking. He says that uh, our procurement costs in the United States are out of control. We have misplaced spending priorities, basically spending on the wrong things. We have opaque bureaucracy. And then we have overregulation that makes it just really hard to be innovative and efficient. And this waste and bloat is worse than you could possibly imagine. So that F-35 fighter jet program, it costs over $1.5 trillion, more than the cost of the entire Iraq war. And it's not just these big programs. If you just look at the line by line details, we had uh, 3D printed toilet seats that cost $10,000. We had reheatable drinking cups that cost $1,200. And I can go on. We could spend hours, if not days, going through line by line all of the waste that's happening. But I'm going to focus on just one thing here, which is the way that we audit our books, because that's a window into how we even think about money. And as background, Every government agency is required to audit their books by law, but the Pentagon largely ignored this law until 2018, when finally it paid $400 million to have 1,200 auditors examine its books, yet it could still not get itself a clean bill of health. The auditors could offer no opinion, explaining that the military's bookkeeping was too illogical to penetrate. And in response to this, you'd think that the Department of Defense would be alarmed at the fact that they can't make heads or tails of how they're spending their money. But the Deputy Secretary of Defense, Patrick Shanahan, said, quote, we never expected to pass the audit anyway. And so we're spending hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, and we can't even get an answer as to how we spend our money right now. That's how bad things are. And the audit itself is becoming a boondoggle. We're spending billions of dollars to accountants who are just simply repeating old recommendations that have been ignored and just throwing up their hands. And I mention this because whenever China is mentioned, if you can get alarm out of anybody, they point to money as being the answer. So the Senate Appropriations Committee recently announced that it's adding $24 billion to the defense budget, which would bring the defense budget up to $740 billion. That sounds great. That sounds like a lot, right? And Senator John Tester, the chairman of the committee, said, quote, it makes key investments to address the most pressing needs of our military so we don't lose ground to our adversaries like China. So the problem here is that 
whenever you can get anybody to take China seriously, they point to more money. But more funding is meaningless right now. That's like saying like Blockbuster can only spend more money on opening more locations and buying more DVDs. They could beat out Netflix. The bigger question is what we're spending our money on and how effectively we're spending it. And it's not just about this one missile, as alarming as that missile is, it's the overall trend. We've been able to take for granted since the Cold War or even to the middle of the Cold War, the beginning of the Cold War, that the US is just the undisputed military leader in the world. And even when it's at its most alarming, we were at parity with another country. It was you know, basically two titans going at it with each other. We're at a point now where not only could China meet where we are, but we could wake up and be blockbuster to their Netflix where we're not even going head to head anymore, but they've surpassed us to such an extent that we're not even playing the same game as them anymore. And that will be a really dangerous world. Wow. Um, I didn't know all of this about China's military. I mean, I knew that they had certain advantages and certain, you know, I knew that they had a bigger military. I think their military is like over 2 million people in it and we only have slightly over a million in ours. So I knew they had a numbers advantage just because of their population, but I had no idea that they had such an advantage technologically speaking. And I think overall we still have a slight technological advantage, but it's really crazy to talk about like what we're spending our money on and how it's not necessarily the stuff that China's spending their money on. Right, and I think it's even hard to get an answer to some of these questions. Like, you know, do we have the technological advantage? Uh, I don't think our government even knows. You can't even get a number from our government how much it spends, for instance, on cybersecurity, right? They have so many overlapping programs. They have so many government contractors and they don't know where the money is. There's like instances of full-on dozens and dozens of buildings that just go missing within the record. The government doesn't even know they own them anymore. Uh, and so it, things have gotten to such a point that I'm pessimistic on this. Yeah, that's insane. We don't even know where this money is going. And how are we going to be able to compete if we're not even sure that we have, you know, the right things in place? It's just, it's a really scary future when you think about it in that regard. Yeah, and there's just not enough attention paid to this. You know, Senator Grassley, you know, there are a few people on the Hill who've been paying attention to this, but Grassley even himself, who's been on this issue for decades, said that he'll be in the ground and this will still be just as bad as it was. So he's maybe even more pessimistic than I am on this. It sounds like it. So coming up next, we're going to have our interview with two experts on Rikers Island. Fourteen people have died in the New York City jail Rikers Island since December of 2020. The crisis reflects a national conversation around criminal justice, mass incarceration, and bail reform, all issues made worse by COVID-19 and staff shortages. I sat down with Graham Raymond of the New York Daily News and Ruvane Blau, who are working on a book about Rikers, to discuss the issues facing the jail and what needs to be done to fix this broken system. First things first, just talking about the shortages in, in terms of corrections officers. I know the conditions in Rikers has been widely reported as being just deteriorating and a lot of problems there. What can you two speak on as far as how those conditions are affecting this worker shortage with corrections officers? There's currently 7,500 officers and there hasn't been a new class since about 2019. The correction union, the Correction Officers Benevolent Association, their response is we need to hire 2,000 new officers. De Blasio administration has said, we're going to hire 600, and they've hired about 150 so far. You know, the jail experts, including the federal monitor, Steve Martin, who's overseeing the Department of Correction, says that, look, there actually is enough officers. They're just kind of mismanaged and where they are. And a lot of them have been calling out sick as well. So it's just sort of a matter of kind of moving around the resources. 
But of course, it's easier said than done. You know, officers who are doing desk jobs or administrative work, you know, don't really want to go back into these sort of really high intense, you know, difficult jobs in the jails themselves. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, the city's really struggling. Like they have a system where uh, detainees are taken to medical visits by officers. They need to be escorted. And if there's not an officer, they can't get escorted. You know, I talked to a, a clinician who said that he's seeing patients who have been on the list for, you know, a week or two weeks and who haven't, you know, been brought to him for that long. And, you know, that, that really creates really, really terrible outcomes. I think both of you did some reporting on Mr. Abdul Karim. His story is um, very tragic, but it's also very indicative of, I think, a lot of the problems surrounding what's going on in Rikers. Can either of you speak to precisely what, what happened with, with uh, Abdul Karim and, and his story and how that relates to some of these failures? His case is, is very, as you said, very indicative of the situation. He, in 2015, he had another, he had a horrible situation where he was put in solitary for an extended period of time and ended up swallowing a battery to try to get out. Long story short, he was mistreated in an extreme way in, uh, in, that, in 2015. Subsequent to that, he is, has an encounter with cops where he suffers a spinal injury and is then confined to a wheelchair. When he died, he was, he was being held on what's called a parole hold. He had been picked up for not showing up for a meeting with his parole officers. At the time, he was living in New Jersey um, and getting from New Jersey to New York for his parole meetings in a wheelchair on public transportation is very difficult. Why you would jail somebody in a wheelchair in this period when they knew that the situation there was terrible, you know, is, is another like major question. He really fit within this population of people who were there on these basically bureaucratic uh, parole holds. He just missed the cutoff for, for being uh, released by the Less is More Act, which is, a, which is a law that was signed by Governor Hochul a few weeks ago, it, which eliminated a number of these types of administrative holds for keeping people in Rikers. Sometimes those stays can last for months because you have to have a hearing. There's a whole bureaucratic process you go through. He died before he was, was able to be looked at for those things. When we talk about reform, are there any cities or any other areas of this country, uh, any other jails or prison systems that you can think of that are sort of kind of the model that New York should be striving for? Is there any system out there in, in the research that you all have done for your book where you see, OK, that's working better for this particular area? Maybe that's something that we could apply here in New York. You know, I think Norway, Scandinavia, like they're famous, famous for very low incarceration rates. And also when people get to those places, there's a, a real, you know, a, just a totally different attitude about how to handle them and what to do. Obviously, there's they are secure areas, but there's just and they're also given like a tremendous amount of services and and uh, programming. The research, the science, the medical research that you know, all the other research that goes into this shows that this is what works. Um, you know, it's just it's difficult for New York City to sort of change what, what's been in place for, you know, for decades or centuries. You know, shutting down Rikers Island is, is part of that sort of reimagination of, of what it could look like, or at least a beginning conversation of what, you know, what it could look like here. Bail reform here in New York actually did decrease uh, the prison population, which contributed to this closing down Rikers being a greater possibility. But then there are those who have said that, oh, but that bail reform allowed more offenders to be on the streets and that that actually contributed to uh, rising crime. And I think there's like this debate whether or not that's true. Where do you all land on that? There was a study of, of the people who were released for medical reasons in COVID, uh, during COVID from Rikers. And the, the recidivism rate 
for that population was tiny. I mean, it was, it was almost zero. I, I think that what happens is typically there are outlier cases, there are high profile crimes that take place and that sort of dominates things. But I, I think if you look at the, the overall trend that, that uh, people who are ROR'd or, or released under supervision um, are not like are not reoffending at some crazy level. Yeah, but I, I think it, you know, even in the outliers, I think it really highlights sort of the laziness of like our like the you know the attitude that we've had for years, which is like, oh, you know, we should arrest somebody, you know, for shoplifting, right? You know, dozens of times, if not a hundred times, right? And clearly that doesn't work, right? The person goes in and out of Rikers, costs a fortune, and the, the, the you know the behavior doesn't change. In the middle of this is the lack of of services that are given or or you know, programs that are given to people or just any, you know, housing, just basic needs that are met by people who are like in and out of the system over and over and over and over again. Um, you know, and how to address that because sending them to Rikers Island by all accounts doesn't work, right? It's hap- it, just the idea that it happens over and over and over again isn't the solution. This is interesting, Ravi, because there has been a push to shut down Rikers since the 1970s. The Blasio laid out a 10-year plan, but it got pushed back. And now it seems like there's more momentum, but uh, no end in sight. And we're seeing a lot of the same people that opposed the shutdown, you know, 40 years ago, opposing it now. And it would be interesting to see how, you know, the next new mayor, presumably it's going to be Eric Adams and how he's going to deal with this. And obviously you have the whole not in my backyard movement where people don't want new prisons in, in the boroughs. And so it's going to be just a really interesting situation. I mean, you're you're a native New Yorker. What is your overall opinion on just the failures here to close down Rikers in the first place? Yeah, what you're alluding to is that there was... This effort to, to shut down Rikers happening simultaneously with a plan that would create uh, four different jails in all the different boroughs except for Staten Island, where I came from. And local groups were opposing putting, a lot of local groups were opposing putting those jails out into the communities. But there was a really good debate about, well, it's better for the families of people who are incarcerated to have a more convenient location to go see their loved ones. And also, you know, some of the more extreme people still believe that there have to be jails, right? Like if somebody commits mass murder, for example, you can't have them out waiting before trial, right, in society. So um, what I found puzzling as a longtime observer of New York is I often don't know what some of the, the more abolitionist folks want out of this process. Like if they don't want Rikers and they don't want borough-based jails, I don't know where we're going to put people. Yeah, it seems like it's a really complicated situation and it's something that's going to be plaguing New York for probably decades to come. So we'll have to keep an eye out on it. We want to thank uh, Ruvain Blau and Graham Raymond. Check out our podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, wherever you get your podcasts from. We're going to be doing this every Tuesday and Thursday. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page and we will see you next time.